0: 62 CP Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries.
1: See, it's one thing to tell somebody that you're sorry and how horrible this is, it's another thing to go into action and say, I'm sorry and I'm going to do something about it. That is mercy. That's pity plus action. That's how merciful people are. They do something about those who are hurting.
0: Pity plus action. Being merciful sounds fairly simple when we hear it in terms such as these. Yet most people generally find themselves stuck somewhere between the pity and the action. In fact, true mercy is so contrary to our human nature that it is an identifying mark of the people of God we welcome you to another broadcast of Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve is continuing his study of the Sermon on the Mount. Today he will begin to look at the fifth of the Beatitudes, Blessed are the Merciful. So just what does it mean to be merciful? What should true mercy look like in our lives? To find the answers to these questions and more, let's join Pastor Steve.
1: Matthew chapter five, as we continue our study in Matthew's Gospel, we find ourselves in the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically in the Beatitudes, which start the Sermon on the Mount. And we are at Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. These words form the fifth Beatitude spoken by Jesus as I said, in the Sermon on the Mount, the beginning of the sermon. And though this is really the briefest of all the Beatitudes, it consists of only six words in the original Greek text. This fifth Beatitude is profoundly rich and deep in meaning. Profoundly rich. There's a wealth of meaning here. But ironically, though this Beatitude does have a wealth of meaning, it is perhaps the easiest of all the Beatitudes to misunderstand and misinterpret. Very easy. And I'll tell you why. The reason for this is that on the surface, it looks as if Jesus is teaching that if you treat others with mercy, then they'll treat you back with mercy. In other words, if people see that we care about them, then they'll be sure to return that and care about us. Now, that's how some interpret this. That's what it looks like on the surface, but is that really what he meant? When Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, was he saying that if you are merciful to others, then you can be sure that those you, you showed mercy to will be merciful back to you? If, if that's the case, then we've discovered an ancient secret hidden on the pages of Scripture of how to get along with people. If that's the case. If this is the case, then we've also discovered the key to world peace. Just be merciful as a nation and other nations will be merciful back to you. But that's not the case. This is not what Jesus is teaching. That's not what this is about. Even if you didn't know anything really about this beatitude, even if you didn't know the, the meaning of this beatitude, you should certainly know that this can't be what Christ is teaching. And the reason is very, is very simple because neither scripture nor experience support the view of life that says mercy shown to men brings mercy from men. The Bible certainly doesn't teach that and experience doesn't teach that. In fact, all you have to do to know that this is the wrong interpretation is to look at the life of our Lord Jesus, the most merciful man who ever lived. Jesus was the most merciful person who has ever lived and yet he did not receive mercy from people. The most compassionate individual didn't receive compassion back from from anybody, really. Really? As you read the New Testament Gospels, you soon realize that Christ's ministry on earth was characterized by mercy and compassion. Not only did he mercifully save many of those he came in contact with, he saved their souls during his three-year ministry, but on countless occasions, Jesus physically healed those who had no hope of ever getting better apart from from his compassionate touch. And out of compassion, the Lord fed, fed hungry multitudes, Not, not once, but on several occasions. He also cast out demons from those who were under their control. Folks, that is a compassionate ministry that we often overlook. Oh yeah, they were demon possessed, big deal. Well, it is a big deal. Even his teaching ministry was motivated by deep compassion as he instructed people when he was exhausted, when he was weary, when he wasn't feeling well. He also demonstrated great mercy by associating with those who were the despised and outcasts of his society drunkards and prostitutes, tax collectors, and that of mercy and concern for the grieving, Jesus even wept at the funeral of his dear friend, Lazarus. And I personally interpret that, that he was weeping out of compassion because he saw the impact that death had on on others because they were weeping. In fact, Jesus was so filled with compassion that Luke tells us that he once actually stopped a funeral procession in order to minister to a crying widow who had just lost her, her only son. And when an adulterous woman, you recall, was brought before him and the Jewish religious leaders wanted to stone her to death, Jesus mercifully intervened and protected her from being killed. Now, you would think that if in the fifth beatitude Jesus was teaching that all you have to do to receive mercy from people is to show them mercy, then really he should have been showered with mercy, merciful affection for all that he did. But was that the case? Absolutely not. Not at all. For all of his deeds of kindness, Jesus was rejected and then crucified. For example, remember when he restored the soldier's ear that had been cut off by one of his disciples in the garden of Gethsemane? It just you know, you know the disciple wasn't going for the ear. He just he was a fisherman and uh, wasn't that good with his sword and got got the ear. You know he was going for the head. But Jesus incredibly demonstrated great compassion by restoring that soldier's ear. That was a great act of mercy. But what was it meant with? Wasn't met with mercy. On the contrary, the soldiers still went on to arrest him and eventually to crucify him. What about the Jewish religious leaders? They witnessed many of Christ's acts of kindness, especially the, the physical healings. How, how, what was their response? Did they say, you know what, we're going to be so kind to you? Actually, if, if anything, they were not softened in heart to become merciful. On the contrary, they, the more they were exposed to his mercy, the more they became hardened and really focused on killing him. In fact, if you, if you study the gospel of John closely, you'll see that it was after Jesus brought Lazarus back to life, that that's when they decided to plot his death. So no, mercy was not met with, with mercy. So if the fifth beatitude doesn't teach that if you show mercy to others, they'll show mercy back to you. What, what does it teach? Well, we're going to find out this morning, but I would also add that, that it's not only scripture that teaches that, that this is not the right interpretation, but experience teaches as, as well. Experience teaches it as well. It is certainly appropriate for us, as we'll study this morning, to be merciful to others, but don't be naive thinking that if you're merciful to others, they'll be merciful back to you. In fact, experience shows that it just doesn't work like that. Some of the most painful lessons in life involve being mistreated by those you once treated with great kindness, right? Right? Most of us have experienced what we would call in our society being knifed in the back. Somebody that you extended great love and demonstrated mercy and kindness to ended up hurting you because that's, that's human nature. That's, it's more appropriate if we understand what the Bible teaches about man's wickedness to, to say, if you show mercy to others, expect them not to show any mercy to you. Expect them to, to go the opposite. So it certainly is not true that if you extend mercy to others, they'll extend mercy to you. What does this beatitude mean? Well, this morning we're going to ask three key questions, all centered around the subject of mercy as it relates to this beatitude, in order to to delve into this and find out what is the meaning? What is the full, complete meaning of this beatitude? We're going to ask number one, what is the meaning of the term mercy or merciful? That's, That's the foundation. If we don't understand what that means, we can't understand anything else. Then secondly, we're going to ask in what practical ways can we be merciful to others? We, we want to get the broad understanding of mercy, but we don't want to leave it as a broad understanding. We want to practice mercy. We want to be specific. We want to know the details and how we can apply this. Then the third question is, what happens to those who are merciful to others? What, what is the end result of being merciful to others? So let's begin by asking that first question that will help us to understand this beatitude. It's this. What is the meaning of the term merciful? That's where it all begins. First thing we want to note is that when Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, he was describing citizens of his kingdom. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. In contrast to those who are outside of the kingdom, this is how citizens of the kingdom are. And the Beatitudes tell us this is what they are in their essential disposition and makeup. In fact, each and I remind you that each of the eight Beatitudes focuses on a specific quality character that uniquely belongs to followers. We are different from religious hypocrites. We are different from pagan secularists. And in this, in this fifth beatitude, the Lord is telling us that those who are saved by his grace have been transformed into merciful individuals. We're, we're all, if you're a believer, we're all in the school of mercy. Nobody shows it perfectly, but, but it is demonstrated in our lives. And like the four previous Beatitudes, this one also follows the normal progression of a Christian's experience in coming into the kingdom. First, because of God's conviction of sin in our own lives, we realize that we have no righteousness of our own. We're wicked sinners. We have no merit to bring before the Lord. And so Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's where it begins. We are spiritually bankrupt. We are spiritually destitute. We are, we are spiritual paupers. And this awareness of spiritual bankruptcy leads us to be brokenhearted over our sin. Because for the first time, we realize how vile we are. We realize that we're not good people. We're not, we're not nice, but a little naughty. We're wicked and we deserve hell. And so we're broken over our sin. And that's why the second beatitude says, blessed are those who mourn. We mourn over our sin. We're, we, we lament, we weep inside and sometimes outside over our own wickedness. Next, we realize that as vile, destitute, grieving sinners, we have no rights, no rights towards God, no rights towards our fellow man. And so we stop insisting on getting our own way. How can a sinner get his own way? How can a sinner insist that his way is the right way? And so and so that's why the third beatitude states, blessed are the gentle, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who who understand what they really are and don't go through life fighting people because they insist on their own way. But now that we see ourselves for what we are, we cry out to God because we realize that there's one thing that's lacking in our lives now on a practical, from practical standpoint, we lack righteousness. And that's why the fourth beatitude says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Having seen our sins so much, we want righteousness. We want godliness in our lives. We long to be holy, we long to be righteous in character, and so we cry out to be more like Christ in every area of our lives. That's the heart cry of a true believer. He desires to be like Christ, conformed to his image, and one of the first evidences that show up in our life that Christ has saved us, regenerated us, given us that new nature, and has begun to conform us to his character, we realize that we have been and are being transformed into merciful people. That brings us then to the question, what is then the meaning of mercy? What does it mean to be merciful? The basic concept behind this this Greek word that's translated merciful is compassion for people in need. It's compassion for people in need. It involves certain feelings of pity and sympathy, but I want you to note this very carefully. Mercy means far more than simply feeling compassionate towards someone in pain. You'll have those feelings, but it doesn't stop there. Mercy goes beyond feelings of sympathy and empathy. Those who are merciful, watch this, those who are merciful take specific steps to relieve and alleviate the pain and suffering of others. That's what mercy is. In other words, the essential thought behind the concept of mercy is that it is compassion in action. Action is, is critical. You don't have mercy if there's no action. Those who are merciful do something to relieve the the misery of others. If you want a concise definition of this, I think uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones really, really summed it up when he said that mercy is pity plus action. Pity plus action. See, a merciful person does more, as I said, than feel sorry for someone in pain. He goes into action and does whatever it takes, whatever he's capable of, of reducing and lessening the pain. Let me illustrate it this way. I just recently read a story about a 19th century English preacher who came across a friend whose horse had just been accidentally killed. Now, the man depended upon his horse. That was, that was critical. And while a crowd gathered, a crowd of onlookers gathered, and, and they expressed deep words of sympathy and empathy for this man, the preacher stepped forward and he said to the loudest sympathizer, I'm sorry, five pounds. Pounds meaning the British monetary system. I'm sorry, five pounds. How much are you sorry? See, it's one thing to tell somebody that you're sorry and how horrible this is. It's another thing to go into action and say, I'm sorry and I'm going to do something about it. That is mercy. That's pity plus action. That's how merciful people are. They do something about those who are hurting. John MacArthur in his commentary on Matthew describes what Jesus meant by the term merciful in this beatitude and how it really differs from feelings of compassion without any action. And there are plenty of people who have that. He wrote this. He said, Jesus is not speaking of detached or powerless sentiment that is unwilling or unable to help those for whom there is sympathy. Nor is he speaking of the false mercy, the feigned pity, that gives help only to solve a guilty conscience or to impress others with its appearance of virtue. And it is not passive, silent concern, which though genuine, is unable to give tangible help. It is genuine compassion expressed in genuine help, selfless concern expressed in selfless deeds, end of quote. So we see that mercy involves far more than our emotions. It is emotional at times, but it's far more than that. It involves actions, concrete, tangible steps that we take to help others to ease their burden and suffering that's critical for us to understand because if we don't demonstrate mercy by our actions then the bible calls our faith into question do we really have genuine saving faith if we if we have no heart to help people and let me show you this first john chapter 3 we're going to move around the bible this morning first john chapter 3 john who wrote a book giving us a series of evidences how we can know that we're really Christians. In fact, that's what first John is about. At the end of the book, he says, These things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. If your life evidences these spiritual realities, you know you have spiritual life. One of those realities is loving others. And John defines for us in first John three, seventeen and eighteen what love is. He says, First John three seventeen, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? The answer is, it doesn't. If you see somebody in need, and you can meet that need, but you don't meet that need, the Bible says, how, how can you say God's love is in you? It isn't. And then John clarifies this in verse 18, where he says, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in and truth. Don't go around telling people how much you love them, but you, you leave them in their misery. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. And then James, just a few books back, James has some potent words for us. James chapter two, verses 14 and following. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith? Now, here's a person who professes to believe in Christ. He says he has faith, but James says he has no works. What do you do with that? Can that faith save him? Can Is that kind of faith regenerated faith or, or saving faith? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? And James says, even so faith, meaning this kind of faith, if it has no works, it's dead. Being by itself. It is not the faith that God gives to us. It is not saving faith. It would be like us knowing that somebody is hurting in this church and somebody is in need, and we just tell them we'll pray for you when we have plenty to help. We have plenty of resources to help. That's exactly what James is is saying. How can we claim to really know Christ if we harden our hearts to someone like that? See, pious words about how concerned you are for someone who is hurting is no substitute for practical action. In fact, James says that those words are absolutely worthless. Why are they worthless? Because if they're not backed by action, they reveal a lack of genuine saving faith, worthless. And that is precisely why, as we go back to Matthew 5, that is precisely why in this fifth beatitude, Jesus said, the merciful, those who are merciful have been blessed by God, blessed meaning approved. They have the smile of God upon their lives because what he's saying is only citizens of his kingdom are truly, in a biblical sense, merciful. No one else is. That's the point of the Beatitudes. As someone has said, the Beatitudes are a portrait gallery of what a genuine Christian is like. Those outside of the kingdom are not merciful in a biblical sense. I'm going to touch on that a little bit later, but keep that in mind. What this means is that the unsaved, lost people who don't know Christ are by nature selfish, unmerciful with hearts that have never been transformed by grace, and they are not capable of practicing merciful acts of kindness in the biblical sense. That's an important truth to grasp, very important truth to grasp. Believers show mercy while unbelievers do not. They're not even capable of it. And I wanna show you this. When the apostle Paul, and you should turn there in Romans chapter one, puts the world on trial, Romans one, two, and three, places the world on trial to prove that all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. He characterizes the ancient lost world as unmerciful. The world is unmerciful, savage, brutal, cruel. Notice in Romans 1, beginning in verse 28, Paul lists the godless qualities of unsafe humanity. This was true in the ancient world, it's true in our modern world as well. Romans 1, verse 28, maybe applied a little bit differently, but the essential truths are there. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. What mind is that? It's their own minds. Their own minds are depraved to do those things which are not proper. And what he, what he does at this point is he lists man without, without a whole lot of restraint in any way, left to himself, carries out his sinful behavior with these actions. Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving. And then notice, notice what caps it all off. This is the culminating evil of this long list of ungodly qualities. He says, unmerciful, unmerciful. And from what we know of the ancient world, it was a very cruel world. It was a world without mercy. It was a cruel place to live. To the ancient Greeks and Romans, mercy was considered a sign of of deep weakness. In fact, one Roman philosopher referred to mercy as the disease of the soul. And why would he say that? Because they viewed mercy as, as a sign of weakness, something that real men didn't do. Real men were about power and control, not being sensitive to the needs of weak people. Not, not being thoughtful and considerate to, to stop and help somebody in need. That was a sign of weakness. And in their love of power, the Romans could be merciful without any mercy, merciless in inflicting great suffering upon others. For example, in the Roman world, fathers had the power to decide if, if their newborn child lived or died if a newborn infant was a female rather than a son or was born with some kind of physical handicap the father could just turn his thumb down and the child would be immediately drowned that was the ancient world that was the ancient world regular citizens had the power to treat their slaves as as living tools that could be disposed of whenever they desired and even husbands had the authority to have their wives actually put to death for the smallest irritation that was the ancient roman world cruel heartless without mercy, savage. What about the ancient Jewish world? Because that was really the context in which our Lord was, was speaking. What about them? Though the Old Testament certainly spelled out that, that God required his people to show mercy, they didn't usually do that. Where did he show this? Where did he spell this out? For example, Micah 6.8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love kindness, that's mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. There's in fact even a song put to that. Hosea 6.12 says, therefore return to your God, observe kindness and justice and wait for your God continually. They were sh- they were told to show kindness. This, this wasn't hidden in scripture. This was very clear. Yet the majority of, of Jewish people did not do this. They often reduced their religion to mere outward observances of rituals. That, that was all was external performance. And they had no regard for God's honor or the welfare of people. And you know what happens when this takes place? And it can easily take place in our lives. When, if we're legalistic and if we only only have a, an outward um, external performance mentality concerning our our faith, if all it is is outward show, here's what happens. You become harsh and hard and judgmental of everybody who's different from you, self-righteous, and you become unmerciful. And that certainly was the attitude of the Pharisees. And you see this so clearly in how the Pharisees reacted to some of the things that Jesus did, especially what he did on the Sabbath.
0: That tendency toward merciless judgmentalism certainly can creep into our hearts very easily. We will have to stop here for right now, but we will rejoin this lesson in our next broadcast. You have been listening to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff. If you would like to learn more about this radio ministry, please give us a call at 727-239-0306. Meanwhile, we encourage you to telephone.